MSW Media. Thanks to Dipsy for supporting the Miller She Wrote Book Club. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories. If you're looking to heat things up, there's a story waiting for you. Get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com ag. This episode is also sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out. I really enjoy the show. I think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's Jordan H-A-R binge R in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. And thanks to Ana Luisa for supporting the MSW Book Club. Ana Luisa makes beautiful, sustainable jewelry at fair prices. For 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash book club and use code book club. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I am your host, A.G. This is the final chapter in the series on Wajaha Ali's book called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American. And today we're joined by the author to answer my questions and yours. Please welcome Wajaha Ali. Hi, Waj. It's the final chapter. I should have my like Valkyrie sword and my Viking helmet. A Muslim Pakistani man. Yeah, with my Viking helmet and you with your Valkyrie sword. And that's how we defeat fascism. Thank you so much for having me. I've been very honored by the series and the fact that people have listened. And I've gone, like I just told you right before we started recording, lovely messages from people who said they discovered me in the book based uh, off of this podcast so anytime anyone reads the book it's like a miracle like I really sincerely believe that like there's so many books and the fact that someone would take the time to open up your book and invest time with it and have a conversation with you is uh, it's like you know these little mini miracles in life well I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you wrote this book I learned so much from it um, and I did find because when I know when we talked on the first time, uh, you know, we were talking about whitewashing books and watering them down and not telling your story to make it more accessible to the people, which are you know <laughs> white people. Uh, but there were so many things that that I could relate to in different ways. Obviously, I don't have your lived experiences, but there are so many things that that I think so many people. Uh, will relate to and have related to in this story. But before we get into some of the questions I have for you and some of our um, patron questions, is I stopped short of the final mm. couple pages because I wanted you to tell us the the final story here. And we went through, I went through most of the chapter uh, about tie your camel first uh, and let God do the rest, which is very uh, kind of a self-explanatory saying. But tell us what that 
saying means and how it applied to getting through uh, stage four cancer with your very young daughter. Yeah, so it's it's a it's this really lovely saying that says, "Okay, have faith in God and tie your camel." Uh, and other variations of that is uh, tie your camel first and then faith in God, which means that you have to exercise anything and everything within your power, your two hands, to fix your situation. And after you've done that there's nothing else you can do. You have to let it go. So it's like, if you're riding a camel in the desert and many of these religions came from the desert, uh, if you don't tie your camel, you're an idiot. <laughs> like why, why did the camel go away during the sandstorm? Uh, Cause you didn't tie it moron. Maybe tie your camel next time. Uh, you know, you can't blame God for your own, uh, uh, laziness and sloth, like, uh, incompetence. Right. So it's one of right, those situations. In Florida, it's tape your windows. Yeah, yeah, and then put your faith in God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, taking that mindset, it's like okay. It, and, and we were talking about that recently in, in another podcast uh, when we we're on Mary's show, Mary Trump's show. Is like, you know, everyone expects um, to outsource all of the solutions to the Avengers and the Justice League who are not coming. And this is, by the way, how we also get strongmen. You know, someone else will take care of it. And so it's one of those situations. That goes okay. I have faith in God. I have faith in a merciful God. Hopefully, inshallah, there will be means by which there will be some help, but I got to do my part. And so when it came to the stage four cancer, uh, where it's almost the three-year anniversary, I think, yeah, amazing. Where she was diagnosed, she was two, about to turn three. Uh, I got this call from my wife, and she's like, I discovered bumps on her on her uh, daughter's stomach. I'm like, what are you talking about? I just left two days ago. I'm in a hotel room in Vancouver. I'm about to give a TED Talk. She goes, I think it's cancer. I'm like, cancer? And, and, and I remember I said, is it one of the... She goes, it's stage four, I think. I'm like, is that one of the good stages? And 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 she's like, no, that means it's like spread all over and it's metastasized. So it's one of those situations, Allison, where as a dad, as a parent, as a caretaker, you're like, my job is to fix things. How do I fix cancer? And you can't fix cancer, right? And so what can I do to solve the situation? And you just have to be in the moment. You have to give comfort. You have to have faith that there could be a plot twist in the story and just as suddenly as there was a stage four cancer, maybe, just maybe, there might be a liver donor who steps up and this little girl could live a healthy life. And so uh, tying your camel means being present, means uh, not giving to despair, means being there for your daughter, means being there for your son, who's also you know traumatized because he's trying to figure out why there's so much disruption, means doing routines in your daily life to maintain some normalcy. And at the same time, uh, trying to be the best husband and partner and father you can be uh, and and throwing out this Hail Mary pass to the universe to save this little girl. So that to me is what, what tying your camel meant. And it became this analogy in the book for we're going through so much. Uh, and I just wanted to make it su supremely personal. Like, okay, let me just make it very minute and personal and direct about stage four cancer. But then if you blow it out, if you look back, you know, like, as you were saying, their people find relatability. They're like, I'm going through a pandemic right now. I'm going through a health crisis. I'm going through income inequality. We're going through racism. Do you tap out or do you say, okay, this is the challenge that I'm facing right now for whatever reason. And my job is to at the very least have hope, but also tie my camel and do what I can with my hands to fix the situation. Yeah, and you talk a lot about hope um, in in these final chapters, and I want to I want to talk about that. Uh, but first, uh, I want to get to what I where I left off because mm. after we got through reading the story about tying the camel, doing everything that you possibly could, 
um, to increase the odds uh, in ever, you know, forever in your favor. Um, and and it, it did work out. And not only did it work out for your daughter, but for other people, too, because so many people stepped up. Mm. Um, but then you say, I just want to increase the percentages in their favor. And I thought I'd start with their names. And that's where I left off, because I'd like for you to tell us this final little bit. Yeah, so names are a big deal, uh, at least for me. I'm an English major, and and also when it comes to most uh, cultures uh, around the world, there, you know, a name has weight. And and when it comes to South Asians in particular, I'm going to translate something that my, the elders used to say is that, oh, that's a heavy name. Do you, are you sure you want to give uh, her or him that name? That name has weight. And what does that mean? Because the name oftentimes has a story attached to it. And so when, 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 you, when we choose names for our kids, right, some people, when you give them a name of like of a prophet or of a historical character, like, ooh, ooh, that's heavy. Uh, that person went through a lot, right? Or, or, oh, that person has to live up to that legacy. So the names and the meanings and the symbols and the stories uh, have weight to it. And when it came to the three names of my children, the reason why I wanted to increase, I guess, if you say the percentages, or maybe after you listen to these names, oh, dear, Listener, you're like, what type of a sadist are you? Uh, as you know, my name is Wajahat, trisyllabic name, very common and mainstream in America. Uh, still no still no Coke bottles with my name on it yet. For my son's name, I just felt very, I just knew. Like for my son's name, I was like Ibrahim. But you know, you have a, your wife has to have her, her, her choice also. She, we trimmed it down to five. But she says, okay, you seem so passionate about it. I'll defer this first one to you. And in the book, if you remember, there was a passage when my parents were in jail and I was just an immense, immense uh, stress and pain where uh, this, this Makbul Nana, who was a very, who had the shining, if you will, he gave me this verse. He gave me this little verse from the Quran just as a litany. He said, just, just this little gift. And that was the story of, of Abraham when he was thrown in the fire. And the stories in the Old Testament, also in the Quran, and in the verses, God said, oh, oh, fires be cool for Abraham. And so the reason why I named my son Ibrahim was it's a prayer, a, a hope that the fires of this world will be cooled for Ibrahim and his generation. And that Ibrahim and his generation will in, uh, in part, in turn, uh, somehow cool the world's fires. So that was the first name. Nuseba is our daughter. She's the cancer survivor. So I just thought like Nuseba is a historical character uh, during the time of the Prophet Muhammad, who was just like a supreme badass. She like was a warrior. She defended the Prophet's life. Uh, when all these verses were addressed to men, she was the one who openly just went up to the Prophet and said, why are these verses just addressed to men? Uh, she was the one who, and then afterwards a verse came that addressed men and women as equals. Oh, you who believe whoever is the most righteous without any gender uh, type of... Um, uh, without any gendered language, right? And she also, like, you know, when it came to giving oaths, um, like there were people who gave oaths to the ambassadors or emissaries of the prophet. She goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to give my oath directly to him. So I think she's one of only two women. So like like a supreme badass. And so I was just like, yo, we need a Nuseba because I, I am not going to raise a damsel in distress. I have no desire to raise a damsel in distress. I am not in any way enamored by damsels in distress. When there's damsels in distress in movies, I'm like, why are you being useless? Don't you like actually, like, you know, don't you want to step up and help yourself and help others? Like if when the zombies are attacking me, Allison, I need my daughter's help. I'm not going to sit there by myself. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, yo, I can't do everything. 
Uh, and my wife is like that too. She's like a, a warrior. So, you know, Seba's a warrior princess. And the funny thing is my wife is like, no, I want to name her Asya. And Asya is a beautiful name, top 10 name. Can't go wrong with Asya. Asya is the name of uh, the Pharaoh's wife, who was the stepmother of Moses, who, who like was decent and wise and tried to save him, right? So I'm like, okay, can't go wrong with freaking Asya, but I really want a Nuseba. But I'm like, wife already gave me Ibrahim. Fine, wife, I'll give you Nuseba. As Nuseba was coming out, literally, as her head was coming out, my wife looks at me breathing. She goes, she's Nuseba. And so that's how we got Nuseba. And she lived up to her name. And then finally, Khadija's our um, pandemic baby. While, <laughs> amazing, while we were facing uh, Nuseba's cancer, stage four cancer, we found out that my wife was pregnant. And so here's my wife pregnant with the belly. And, you know, we're trying to save uh, Nuseba's life. And... Uh, you know, this is on me again. I just really like this name, Khadija. Mm-hmm. And Khadija is the name of one of the most famous personalities of all of Islam. Very quickly, the, the wife of the prophet, um, one of the four perfected women. She was older than the prophet. She was wealthier than the prophet, a woman of immense great character, who was who the one who actually initiated marriage. She's the one who said, hey, yo, young man, I respect you. I want to marry you. And then the prophet said later on, uh, she comforted me when no one else comforted me. She believed in me when she, no one else believed in me. And, and like her place in my heart is like, no one, no one can match it. So mm. I just felt like when we were going through this storm, I'm like, here's this little gift that has come. So I called her our Khadija and the Khadija is an old school name. And, but, uh, but she wears it well. And so here are these three kids with these trisyllabic old school heavy names. And my wife is like, did you just want them to suffer like you did with Wajahat? I'm like, I swear to God, it was just by accident. So Ibrahim, Nuseba, Khadija, that's the story. I love that. I love that so much. I'm instantly reminded um, with when you were talking about Nuseba, about uh, one of my favorite songs by someone named Ani DeFranco. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm old school. I know. I know these deep cuts. <laughs> and she said, I'm no damsel in distress. I don't need to be rescued. So put me down, punk. I'm not a maiden fair. Isn't there a kitten? Yeah, damn right. Isn't there a kitten stuck up a tree somewhere? <laughs> I love that so much. And I, I, I feel that. Um, I, and the story of right when she was coming out, it, this is, yeah, that's. Yeah, she looked at me. She goes, she's, she's new saber. I'm like, Nusaber. all right. Yes, yes. Awesome. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you uh, for sharing that that final story. And uh, now I want to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit. And I want to talk about who all the hardships, right? Mm. A, a, aside from being an immigrant, um, the for the Ali curse, for example, with your mm. health, uh, because mm. I, I feel like you get a couple of chapters and things are going well. And then you're like, and then I almost died again. Uh, and it's like, oh, come on, Wash. Like, gee, this this is harsh stuff. Um, and uh, I, what was it, four times that you almost died? And and uh, so talk a little bit about the Ali, uh, because I remember doing a little bit of research on the evil eye mm. uh, after reading about it in in your book. And I, I was watching a video of um, some women in hijab talking to each other and com- one complimenting the other's hijab and then saying inshallah like mashallah mashallah right just to be like hey no it's chill i'm not jealous right i'm not envious and i don't want to curse anyone here so it's like a it's a big thing so talk a little bit about the the ali curse sure sure so so this concept of nazar 
or the quote-unquote evil eye actually exists in pretty much every culture if you go around the world. Mexico, Jewish cultures, Eastern Europe, right? And regardless of whether or not you were part of a faith tradition, there are these cultural traditions where you kind of ward off the evil eye, incense, a prayer, you spit. And it's, it's it, even if you don't believe in the metaphysical or like, you know, anything when it comes to celestial powers, it's human nature. Well, you know, like the golem inside us, right? What's the intention? Yeah, the, you know, a whisper, a jealous whisper can, as, as Iago and Othello found out it can cause tragedy. And so that's the concept of Nuzzer. And, and when you and what I do oftentimes almost as a training is if you if I give you a compliment or if I give other people compliments, my friends who are non-Muslim, they kind of learn this because I say it so often. I'll say, mashallah, that's a great podcast. And like, what did you say? And it's almost like a prayer as a blessing, as a protection, but also to also reformulate your intention. To be like, you know what, if my intention here is something tinged with jealousy or envy, it's squashed. When it comes to the Ali family curse, and you mentioned these near-death experiences and all these kind of really awesome, horrible things that happened to me in waves, or it was my narrative explanation for chaos, because human beings are storytelling animals. And so I don't know if there's like a jinn doing pull-ups and stretches every day, you know, right before he comes after me to destroy me. I don't know. Like, I don't know if there was actually someone who did put a curse on us, although there are theories and within my family, but it was almost like I, the only way that I can logically make sense of the chaos of my life that comes in almost mathematically like precise waves is that there's an Ali family curse. And I have to outrun this curse. I have to outlive this curse. This is something that's probably been passed down and, and the curse is going to catch up to me. And so I have limited time and I have to do everything within this limited time before this thing finally gets me. And that's, that was my mindset throughout my twenties. There's an interesting Allison is that so many people now, you know, you're doing some more book clubs and stuff. People bring up the Ali family curse a lot, much more than I thought they would. Cause I think it also taps into something that perhaps they've not articulated in their life where you just have to make sense of the universe and you feel like, is there a bad juju? Did I miss it? <laughs> it, it you know, s- someone's bad eye, like what happened? And so, you know, someone have, someone, people have asked, well, is the curse over? And I'm like, I don't know, but I have outlived it. I got married. I have had kids. So I'm going to go out saying I beat it. And, and, and maybe that the thing called curse is just, something called life. Life has good, life has bad, life has tragedies, life life has joys, and you just have to ride the waves. Right. And um, I had I'm constantly thinking of the Khalil Gibran, um, you know, the deeper sorrow and tragedy digs into your soul, the larger the well to hold happiness. Uh, and that, mm-hmm. that allows us to experience great uh, joy uh, where we might not be able to otherwise. And then I think of people who don't have anything wrong in their life. And I wonder if they can experience that level of joy because they don't, uh, or maybe they're just good at hiding it. I'm not sure. Uh, all right. I have a couple more questions for you and then we're going to get to our listener questions. I have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for the MSW Book Club, and I want to talk about a great new brand sponsoring our show today, Ana Luisa. Ana Luisa crafts beautiful jewelry with the planet in mind. 
From packaging to products, Ana Luisa Jewelry is 100% water and carbon neutral. They let me pick out some spectacular pieces of jewelry and then sent them to me. I got some stylish new earrings. They're drop earrings. They're really beautiful. Uh, and I got a bracelet, a gold rope bracelet. I feel so fabulous wearing my new Ana Luisa jewelry. And the best part, it's affordable with fair prices that start at just $39. And new jewelry collections are released every Friday. They make amazing gifts with a large selection of gorgeous items to shop for yourself. Uh, or, again, that perfect gift for someone else, especially Mother's Day. Ana Luisa pieces are high quality, unique, and so reasonably priced. Um, again, Mother's Day is coming up. Ana Luisa would make a perfect gift for all the moms out there. And we have an Ana Luisa deal for you. Go treat yourself or your loved ones and use my code BOOKCLUB, all one word, to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them. They're a great brand. The earrings I've been wearing for a week, and they don't hurt my ears at all. They're amazing. They make beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So go check out shop.analuisa.com slash bookclub and use code BOOKCLUB. For 10% off, go to shop.analuisa.com slash bookclub and use code BOOKCLUB. That's shop.analuisa.com slash bookclub code book club all right welcome back we are talking with the author of go back to where you came from and other helpful recommendations on how to become american wajahat ali and um watch question for you talking about early on and throughout the book specifically with the play um and your first 10 page story uh mm. and having these teachers that that seemingly were were supporting and and um helping you find these opportunities and find your voice. Talk a little bit about finding, finding your voice, because it's, it's different from the generic checklist of what uh, you need to do to be a successful immigrant in the United States. Yeah. I think I, I, I tried deliberately to, to chart this honest course, right? Where, because, you know, I've talked about this before, when if people hear you or see you, Allison, or see me on TV, what they'll assume is the following. I'm just an average schlub. I'm not like them. Who am I? I'm nobody. And I always joke with people. Um, I love nobodies. Some of my favorite people are nobodies. I'm a nobody. Uh, and I think it's important for people to know the humble beginnings and to know that most of us aren't born this way. I think, you know, it takes time and effort and love and investment to find your voice. Miles Davis, uh, I believe it was Miles Davis who said, it takes a long time to be able to play like yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that, you know, with, with, with time and mileage, uh, uh, you know, it takes many of us those years to, of experience and, 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 and life and pain and heartache to be like, oh, this is who I am. This is my moral compass. This is my voice. This, I, I'm in my groove finally. And so for me, the, the, the way it, it happened was precisely because I was such an odd duck, overweight, shy, sick. I have always throughout my life been forced into uncomfortable situations, pushed into uncomfortable situations, or forced myself into uncomfortable situations where my metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, has been tested and my voice has been formed. And I try to chart that journey in the book. And I think it's important for people who are, the reason why it's important is for people listening right now, they're like, what can I do? Who am I? I'm nobody. And I hope they look at the book and say, oh, this guy, he was also nobody. He was he couldn't even speak English. And he and he he was shy and he got sick and he almost died multiple times. And there was hardships and it didn't happen overnight. There's very few overnight successes, like maybe one percent. You know, you know, most of it, most of it is failure and pain and, and, and neurosis and insecurity with moments of joy and encouragement also. 
that allows us to get to this point of, of security and confidence and comfort, right? It, it, I've worked a, I've worked a, 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 a long time to be comfortable. <laughs> Let me put it that way. And, 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 and my path is not the immigrant checklist, right? It's, I was supposed to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, but instead my parents were in jail and I was broke and my credit was shot to hell. And, and what I'll say is this, in this path towards finding my voice and kind of what you were implying in your question, if everything went according to plan, I would be probably in the middle of a divorce right now, married to the wrong woman at a corporate job that made me a lot of money outwardly, as you were mentioning, everyone think everyone thinks I'm happy and successful. Internally, I'd be miserable. I'd have a midlife crisis and I'd begin my writing career at the age of like 44. Mm -hmm. But when the, when the checklist blew up and the master narrative, you know, burnt down uh, an askew path opened up that at first looked like, you know, it was like the forest, the dark forest. The only way out is through. And by going through the dark forest in a strange way, it helped me actually do what I always wanted to do. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, and we, uh, on our podcast, uh, other podcast, Daily Beans, we talked to a lot of guests about wrong turns and accidentally ending up in a place that you, it, I don't know anyone who, uh, you know, gets to, you know, works their plan out on, on the path that they thought for their whole life. Like I, I, I don't know anybody who personally know anybody who, who's had it that way. So it's very interesting how things accidentally just sort of put you where you're supposed to be. As long as I, you know, as long as you, like you said, work hard and be kind and, and be true to yourself. I think you will eventually find it, but it does take a long time. What do they say? Uh, humans plan God laughs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's what Morrissey says, right? I think it's Morrissey. <laughs> but, you know, I, I never thought I would be a comedian. I was going to be a musician. I never thought when I was a musician that I was going to be a musician. I thought I was going to be a teacher. You know, like you just never know what what uh, life is going to hand you. But after that extremely tumultuous decade with your parents mm. in jail, the sort of Damocles hanging uh, over the family, waiting for those appeals to come through. After going through all that, after going through the sicknesses and the health problems, um, you still, at the end of your book, talk about how essential it is to have hope. And I think that there mm. are a lot of people out there right now um, that are losing it or have lost mm. it, uh, mm. mainly because, at least in my circles, it's because we aren't seeing accountability um, yeah. for some for some very illegal behavior on behalf of former leaders. Um, who and I, f I feel like I, I keep struggling against that that apathy with with others to to not let it go. Talk a little bit about the importance of hope and how you still can maintain hope through all that. Yeah, I, I empathize with all of you. Look, I'm not a a, a Hallmark card. Um, I'm a pragmatist. I'm not a wide eyed naive idealist. Uh, I, I share your frustrations. Like there's days. Like last week was a week that I gave myself to be cynical because. I was like, there's no accountability. They're all going to fail up. I knew they're going to fail up. I see the signs of fascism around the corner. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. The system will not hold. Uh, we have corrupt, impotent leaders. Uh, the party that we have is unwilling to fight. Um, people are, are overwhelmed. There's a pandemic. Uh, disinformation is making otherwise rational people do a both sides false equivalence. And people just don't see what's around the pipeline, right? And I told a friend of mine, 
that, listen, get some land, get some money, get a gun, live in a purplish, bluish state. Let's ride this out for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and I was frustrated. My wife's, and my wife, who's like the sunny optimist who thinks I might be sometimes too cynical, she you know, was just looking at these signs. And she goes, wow, everything that you've been warning about for the past five, six years is coming true. Uh, and she, and this is the conversation that we had, Allison. Well, where, where should we go? Where can we go to be safe? And these are conversations that my friends and I are having more and more without that knowing humor. It's getting slightly more realistic. And so it's like Portugal, they've had their fascist movement. Well, your, parents, nice. your parents had this discussion too, yeah, right? They're the, like, the New Zealand's up there on the list. Yeah. Vancouver. And so that's, you know, that's when I get not, not necessarily cynical. I think this is the realist to me is like, I don't think people are seeing that. I don't, I don't know if this country can sustain itself. Um, the forces uh, uh, that are committed to, to white Christian nationalism are just more dedicated and organized and, and the majority is flabby. So the pivot then uh, is the pivot and I'm flabby as well. So no shaming the flabby, but like, you know, it's like, it's like butter. It's like, it's like if you, they remind me of like a hot knife and they'll just carve the rest of us like butter, you know, give me a zealous minority that wakes up every day with conviction over a kind of a lazy, moderate majority any day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we have the numbers. So that's where the pivot comes. I'm like, but we have the numbers and we did see people come out and this is America's story. And America always learns the hard way. And I've been through a lot in life. And he's just like, even the Twitter thing, I said, mm-hmm. you know what? F this man. If this mother is taking over, I'm going to be right there. And I'm going to be a pest. Mm-hmm. I'll just be the pest. You know, we keep seeding ground and people don't realize, if I may quickly say, be political for a second, that is part and parcel of the right wing strategy. Intimidate them so they seed the ground. And once they seed the ground, we'll take over. School boards, healthcare professionals, a poll watchers, um, you know, a city council, social media. And I'm like, F that. So as I say in the book, you know, I got kids. I can't afford to be cynical. And, you know, I have mileage on me. Maybe there's more years behind me than ahead of me. You think about life and legacy. And I was telling my wife, at the very least, I want it to be known, whoever, like, you know, the aliens in the future who look at the the the, the debris of humanity, they're like, oh, this Warbalat Ali guy, he, he, he fought back. This whatchamacallit fought back. And I'm like, you know, that, and, and then you never know. Sometimes all you need is someone to fight back and then there could be a plot twist. You never know. There can be a plot twist. And last time I checked, Allison, the story is still being written. Mm-hmm. The ink is not dry. And so that, that when people say it's all over, man, I'm like, it ain't over yet. As long as I'll, as long as there's others like me and we're fighting, it ain't over yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had a flashback to, I think it was Conan O'Brien's um, soliloquy about cynicism when he was. Oh, yeah. I remember. I saw that. Serendipitously removed from his position at NBC. <laughs> and um, I that speech. If you have, if you're listening, you have a minute to look it up, um, look up Conan O'Brien and cynicism. It's truly a, a great uh, speech. And, and reading your words in the final chapters here about uh, hope and how, you again, you're not a naive, bright-eyed, no, no. Um, you're a pragmatist, but that, that hope still remains. I, I, was, I had that same feeling, so uh, I appreciate that. Um, Okay, we're going to take one more break, and then we're going to come back with our patrons' questions for you. I think we have a couple, and uh, I'm looking forward to your answers. So everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hey everyone, it's AG, and today's episode of the Book Club is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show combines in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like Arthur Brooks and General Michael Hayden with Feedback Friday episodes to respond to listener questions about everything from conventional conundrums like asking for a raise at work to doozies like helping a family member escape a cult. On The Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll learn useful advice from the heavy-hitting interviews with best-selling authors like retired Navy SEAL Jocko Willenick, and learn lessons for how we can defend ourselves in the age of cyber threats from Richard Clark, who spent three decades in a national security policy for the United States government. And that's just the beginning. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life. That could mean learning how to ask for advice properly, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's Jordan, H-A-R, binge, R, in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. And today's episode is brought to you by Dipsy. There's spring fever in the air. With the smell of blooming flowers and the feeling of the sun shining down on us, you can't help but feel inspired to spice things up and explore, explore your inner desires and fantasies. Find stories that match your mood this season on Dipsy. Dipsy is an awesome, entertaining app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed by women for women. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and characters, and there's something for everyone, no matter what you're into or what turns you on. Find stories about an intriguing coworker with a British accent or hooking up with your hot yoga instructor. They even have stories designed specifically for your zodiac sign. Very cool. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy is a way to get in a mood, spark your imagination, or connect with yourself. Use it as part of your relaxation and self-care. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash AG. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash AG. Dipsystories.com slash AG. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are on the final episode of the book club series uh, covering Go Back to Where You Came From by Wajahar Ali. And uh, Waj, we have some patron questions for you. Yay. So I'm going to dive right in here. This is from Michelle, pronouns she and her. Not a question, but I think you mentioned how much you wanted to be a regular American kid eating regular American dinners at home. My Finnish mother was always making traditional Finnish casseroles for us, but I wanted hamburgers and hot dogs, food I was sure that all my friends were eating at home. She even sent me to school with a lunchbox containing a sandwich and a tomato. I was 10 and so embarrassed that I wouldn't even take the tomato out of my lunchbox for fear the kids might see things weren't normal at our house. Being a child of an immigrant is sometimes not fun. Indeed, being the child of an immigrant sometimes is not fun. And and, and uh, I have no disrespect towards the Finnish casserole. I have not eaten it yet. I'm sure it's delicious, but I'm sure you, just like me, had learned later in life that all those kids who used to make fun of us later enjoy our food. And you're like, you know, like, damn it, where were you when I was a kid? Uh, why couldn't you have discovered chicken tikka masala and nahari and halim and biryani and the deliciousness of it all when, when, we were, you, when you were making fun of me? It's one of those situations, right, when you're the other like you mentioned, uh, like I mentioned in the book, you find out your place oftentimes in school, like you find out your place in the American hierarchy. And I did this comment, you know, sometimes you do these throwaway comments, Allison, that, you know, not throw in the sense of like, I don't know if it'll res resonate with people, just a, a story. So I, I mentioned another uh, podcast where, you know, I brought the these delicious kebabs my mom made because my mom decided to make these kebabs for frigging like International Week or something. And she's like, oh, they, they'll love this. I'm like, okay. 
And so she makes these awesome kebabs. The teachers devour it. And all the kids are like, why do you, why do you eat poo? And I'm like, it's not poo, it's kebabs. Why are they shaped like poo? I'm like, I don't know, they're kebabs. Why is there green stuff in your poo? I'm like, isn't there green stuff in everything? And and then <laughs> and then late, like years later, years later, they're like, kebabs are amazing. And I'm just like, oh, if our parents only knew how much they're <laughs> they're traumatizing us. But you know, it's one of those situations where this is where, in all seriousness, having an educator, a teacher an environment that is inclusive and curious actually celebrates all these wonderful traditions and makes the kid feel like they are part of a community, mm -hmm. which is why we need those teachers in that type of environment. And which is why that is currently under attack from forces committed towards fascism. Yeah. And my my personal privilege put me at the opposite end of that. I was so privileged that I had the privilege to be weird and wanted to be different. So like, you know, I grew up Catholic school, jumper, blonde, curly pigtails, strawberry oh, shortcake, lunchbox. Nah. Um, <laughs> and so come around 15 or 16, I'm like, no, I like The Cure. I'm listening to The Smiths. I'm totally goth. Leave me alone. You know, like, I wanted to be kind of an outcast. And so I that my privilege allowed me that... Um, the ability to do that, you know, the ability to be like, no, I'm going to be weird. I get to choose, you know. You get to choose. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I get to choose to be the outsider, whereas the rest of us nope. had no choice. Yeah. And so that's something that I recognize. Uh, and uh, that's why I think your book is so important. It makes people think about where they, how they approach these things, where they come from, and how their privilege impacts or doesn't impact their life, so to speak. All right. Next question. From Anonymous, uh, no pronouns given. It's difficult to decipher questions and comments that may come. Is it difficult to decipher questions and comments that may come from a benign ignorance mm. and genuine curiosity about your family's culture before their move to the United States? Is it? Can you decipher those from the questions that come from a less good place, so to speak? That's a, that's a very good question, and everyone has a different response. I try not to jump on people. I give people uh, much more leeway, even sometimes when I could sense that based on the framing of the question, and I've been in this game for a long time where the, the person's coming from, right? But then I'm like, okay, if the person, say, has a less sincere interest in truly understanding this and is trying to just bolster their own uh, stereotypes uh, and oftentimes Islamophobic and racist worldview, Let's see if I can win them over. Let's see if I can give them a, a rational, intelligent response. Let's see if I can be warm. And like I said, at the end of the day, you can only tie your camel, man. <laughs> the rest is on them. I can only control my own intentions and actions. And if that person chooses to be an a-hole, that's on them. And so I, I am now, I have a good radar. My spidey sense is sharp. I am able usually to accurately predict. Uh, but unlike others who are like, you know, scoff or roll their eyes and say like, yeah, how dare you ask me? Like, I, I try to be a little bit more gentle with most. Uh, I assume they're coming from a good place. Maybe they're curious. Maybe they don't know. And I don't want to punish people for their curiosity, right? I think there has to be more grace for all of us. I don't care if you're on the right or the left in the sense where, you know, people mean well sometimes. They might not articulate their question, but if the intention is there and they're truly willing to listen, if you respond in a way that slaps their face, it, it, it's like shutting the door instead of opening the door. Uh, and, and also, it, it then potentially turns an ally. 
into an enemy, right? And, and then what also happens, what people don't realize is, is that their curiosity or their ignorance doesn't go away. It just goes quiet. And, and they have those conversations. They just don't have it publicly. And in public, they smile and they nod their head. And when no one's looking, they'll go vote for Governor Yunkin. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and, and you know, and when I grew up, the time I grew up, uh, polite society was a thing, right? That's right. And, um, and so being, if you were going to rebel against polite society, that's what punk was, right? But one of my favorite more recent quotes is, is this world has changed quite a bit, especially in the United States. And uh, they say on Twitter, I can't remember who said it, uh, somebody without a blue check mark, um, but it's it's has stuck in my mind ever since is in now we're in a world of performative cruelty and in a world yeah. of performative cruelty, kindness is punk AF. So I, I interviewed a punk rock band uh, at South by Southwest surfboard can't get more punk than them. And their whole ethos is like, we just want to be kind and spread the love. And, 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 you know what? I went to my first mosh pit in 20 years because I'm an <laughs> idiot with a mask on. Cause I'm like, I can still do it. And, and like I, the rules have changed apparently because everyone was so nice in the mosh pit. Like they performed protective circles. It was still a mosh pit, but everyone was looking out for each other. And anytime someone fell, they're like, no, no, no. I'm just tying my shoelace. They made like a cocoon around them. And then, and now, and I felt so much pride. I'm like, I can still mosh. And then a guy around our age, he goes, just wait till tomorrow. And like my body was in pain for the next two days. But yeah, kindness, kindness, love, empathy is now punk. Mm-hmm. Isn't that wild? It's Yeah, it is. It is wild. Be and punk. Even also, yeah, I will say this about punk culture. Punk culture also was always a safe space for those who are oftentimes the marginalized and the misfits yeah. where they can find love and empathy. Yep, totally. hundred um, percent. This is, this is a fun question from anonymous. Does the wash Rick Wilson, Don Lemon, Ukraine clip still make you laugh? I watch it regularly as a mood booster. <laughs> I'm so amused that about the longevity of that clip, the virality of the clip and how it triggered so many people explain that, that clip, clip explain the clip first for those who haven't so, seen it okay this was this is what happened trump was president trump was an idiot said idiotic things mike pompeo mocked mary louise kelly of npr who is a brilliant expert on eastern europe and instead lied about their exchange and said something like oh she couldn't even find it on the map and maga just celebrated in in more cruelty towards especially women journalists so there was a seven minute segment with me, Rick Wilson, and Don Lemon. Where actually, if you watch the entire clip, it's all there, you can see the entire panel. Of the seven minutes, five minutes are very serious, where we're talking about exactly what you said, the cruelty is the point. This is part and parcel uh, 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 of Trumpism, mocking women, mocking journalists, right? Pompeo's actually a liar. Look at the ignorance of Trump. And somewhere there, like 90 seconds, we just start riffing. And you know, Wilson starts making fun of like the rubes, and then if he's making fun of it and Don starts laughing, I'm like, well, I'm on live TV. I'll just have fun, too. So then I'm like, yeah, it goes, all you liberals drinking your green tea lattes with your maps and lines. And like Don, like Don Lemon loses his mind for some strange <laughs> reason. Right. So it's like it's this like kind of inspired Looney Tunes 90 second clip of live television, which was a much needed like harmless catharsis for most people. Right. And CNN loved it also, but then a day and a half later, it got deliberately weaponized by the right wing. And our mainstream media colleagues, as always, Allison, bent the knee 
to these bad faith actors and then they took their finger and they started waving at me he goes how dare you mock them this is why they voted for trump and i'm like this is the most harmless silly clip are you kidding me and then they use that clip at the rnc they use that clip they made an ad out of that clip and, and trump retweeted that clip and so i kind of became a fixture from that moment on uh in in maga so it's it's that clip and then and then on the flip side the majority of people are like i don't care man that shit's hilarious yeah so. <laughs> it was really funny Thank you for that question. Uh, also from Anonymous, as a, quote, first generation, unquote, was there more pressure from your parents to stand out as excellent or to kind of fit in? And what gives you the will to stand out? And then they say, does that make sense? That does make sense. Yes. As I mentioned in the book, if you're a person of color on the wrong side of privilege or a woman, you realize very early in America that you have to daft punk it in life. You just have to do everything harder, better, faster, stronger, smarter. You just have to. And if you think I'm making that up, look at wages. Women work just as hard, if not harder than men, they get paid less. Example, look at the model minority Asian Americans. We're so good and we work so hard and yet we're not CEOs. We're completely erased from the textbooks. You know, We're the only models that are rewarded for being invisible. Look at all like, you know, when you look at the metrics of power and success and ascension, who gets, to, who, let me put it this way. Think about this. Who has the privilege to be angry in America? Just think about that. Who gets the right to be angry? Who gets rewarded for anger? Who gets rewarded for shooting from the hip and not taking any crap and being politically incorrect and keeping it real and telling like it is? It ain't women. Politically incorrect. Nice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It ain't women. It ain't brown folks. It ain't black folks. It's white dudes. And so that's what you learn early on, very early on. Okay. In order for me to, to go 10 feet, I got to jump 20 feet. And in order for me to compete with Bob, he works Friday nights. I got to work Saturday night. And so it's one of those things where it's one of those Im- just implicit lessons you get. No one has to tell you, you just get uh, both as an immigrant and as a child of immigrants in America and also as a person of color and woman. Uh, when you just see how the rules are, you're like, oh, this is the system. This is the myth. And this is the reality. Uh, and, and yeah, I'm not the only one to have said this. Just you know, listen to women and black folks and brown folks. Like this is that famous Chris Rock uh, comedy uh, uh, bit that he did. He goes, I live in a neighborhood where it's me, Mary J. Blige, Eddie Murphy, the breast of the best and a white dentist. You know, then why why is the white dentist here? Just a run-of-the-mill yank-your-tooth dentist. In order for a black dentist to be in this neighborhood, he'd have to invent teeth. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, two more questions here from Josie, pronoun she and her. Do you think the prosecution of your parents was racially motivated? No, but I have asked my parents this. My mom does believe that because there were a brown mom mom and pop operation. There were low hanging fruit at that particular time in a post 9-11 climate that allowed the government and Microsoft pretty much to make examples of them, if that makes sense. Also, when it comes to the prosecution, actually, I'll take it back. I will say yes, because I mentioned this story in the book, and I'll mention it again, that this was again, like seven months after 9-11. And in the pre-trial hearing, when we were trying to get them out on bail, the, 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 the government's attorneys said, uh, to deny them bail or to get them really high bail, they told the judge, I think his name was Judge Brazil. This was in Oakland. Uh, we found these documents in these books and they have Arabic in them. And you know, the Taliban are in Pakistan. 
and Judge Brazil shut him down right there. Mm-hmm. And so was, I was sitting there, I'm like, wow, first and foremost, these books are prayers, <laughs> literally prayers uh, in Urdu and Arabic. Uh, secondly, my, my family has nothing to do with the Taliban, but it didn't matter. Pakistan, Muslim, Taliban, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, national security threat. You just saw how quickly, how quickly they weaponized um, that identity and racism to try to deny them bail. So it was an environment in which, if you guys remember who, whoever was old enough, America lost its damn mind. We, we freaking canceled French fries. We canceled Dixie Chicks. It, it was madness. Yeah. Uh, Muslims were surveilled. The FBI showed up at our houses. There was a Muslim registry. You know, they went after our charities. So I, I tried to do that in the book in the sense that I tried to give you the backdrop where, where my mom also feels like because she says we were these, you know, Pakistani immigrants who were Muslim at that climate, we became easier fish mm-hmm. to fry. And, 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 and although the case itself had nothing to do with, you know, domestic uh, security or national terrorism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every Afghan business, you talked about this in Fremont. Uh, and I, I saw it here, too, in San Diego, like more American flags per square foot than you could even <laughs> in the history fit of in. American flags, yellow ribbons, et cetera. Um, when when I drove to South by Southwest in 05, I think I had a couple of anti George Bush stickers on my car. And uh, my lead singer stopped in a gas station and bought those magnetic 99 cent ribbons with eagles and flags and yellow ribbons and bought about 40 of them and Mm. just covered the car with with them. So they're like, we just don't want them to know we're Democrats. Uh, And so. No, that's it. That was it. Yeah, I mean, like you're like, I've never seen that many. And And the reason is, is if it goes back to the previous question, if they didn't do it, if they if we didn't do that performative patriotism, our loyalty would be held as suspect. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And finally, from Lady of the Farm, Crystal, pronouns she and her. So much of her story reads to me as the experience of code switching between groups you can call home. Something I've struggled with is uh, in similar experience as a mixed race person whose alternate is not welcome in the other population. Mm. I out myself as passing when I speak up against racism and I'm not welcome in some native spaces because I pass. And while my father grew up on the res, I did not. I have found some dark humor in situations where racism occurs on paper until they see my face or let me pass until I braid my hair or speak a bit of Lakota and mask and the mask slips. Uh, I will also I was also a tomboy. So I straddled that fence as long as I was allowed as well. I assume there this isn't quite your path, but have you seen similar experiences and was curious as to what your thoughts, what thoughts you have on the ridiculous aspects of straddling worlds and not having a home in any of them? Yeah, no, that 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 resonates. And even though, you know, oftentimes the universal is found in the, speci- uh, the specific, and I'm glad you mentioned those specifics. And as I was listening to that question, I think you have a great book in you. Crystal. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. Um, yeah, many of us are trying to find our home, right? Because even within Muslim communities, you have to realize in the book, it was my own South Asian Muslim communities that in a sense banished me and exiled me. As I'm speaking right now, there are Muslim communities who boycott me. Americans <laughs> told me to go back to where I came from, right? Uh, I, uh, I'm one of those situations where I'm from the religious community. I'm, I'm Muslim, but then I kind of hit back against what I think are some of the more to- toxic aspects of the communities. And they're saying, oh, you're a sellout. 
Yeah. Or you're just trying to kiss up to these white liberals. Um, you know, when you do interfaith, oh, of course, you're just doing interfaith. You're selling us out. But then with the interfaith groups, oh, he's just pretending to be the moderate Muslim. We know what his real agenda is. And so it's one of those situations where in the book, it's like, you're trying to love a country that doesn't love you back. You're trying to love a political party, Democrats that treats you like a side piece within your own communities that you love and defend. They, they banish you. And so it's, it, it is painful, Crystal. It is painful and it's okay to admit that pain because it's like the rejection, right? You, you love a community. Uh, and it's like America. You love a community. You just want her to be better. And, and she goes, no, I'm going to be self-destructive. And instead of thanking you, for calling out my my warts and sins, I'm going to beat you down. And and yet you still persist. And so why do you persist? Because the love is still there. That's why you persist. Why do you keep coming back? Because of love. Why do you keep coming back to home? Love. Why do you keep coming back to family? Love. Love and the, and, and the hope that maybe things will get better. And so it's one of those situations where I think you're allowed to have that emotion. But for me, uh, I'm at that point now and going to some of what we were talking about, finding your own voice, having enough mileage, you know, I'm on my own journey. I'm on my own path. And I'm at this place right now where I'm in my life where I've, I've worked hard. <laughs> uh, I'm talented. Uh, I've done enough and I've, I've gone through enough that I'm not afraid. And I'm just going to be myself. And if I'm going to play in my corner of the playground. And if people want to play with me, come play with me. And if you don't, just don't kick sand in my face. <laughs> That's all you ask, right? Yeah. Yeah, I've I come to something that comes to the top of my head is when Cory Booker said, if America hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. Um, yeah, that's right. That gets me every time. Uh, thank you so much. First of all, thank you for the book. Um, this is just a absolutely wonderful, funny, dark, sad, amazing, <laughs> um, amazing piece. And I'm, I'm so glad that you wrote it. Uh, and I'm so glad that I read it. And if you haven't read it yet, if you're listening to this and you haven't read it yet, you, you must. It's called Go Back to Where You Came From and other helpful recommendations on how to become American. I appreciate your time today so much in answering our patron questions. Wajaha Ali, thank you so much. No, thank you so much. It's been an honor. And most importantly, it got us to talk to each other finally and become friends. So it's, a, it's a, it, you know, serendipitous. The, look at the, the gifts that keep on happening when we take the unexpected path. Yeah, so the honor is truly mine. Thank you so much. And everybody, we will be back with a new book. I haven't decided what it's going to be yet, but when we do, um, you will know. You'll be the first to know. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. And please vote blue over Q. I've been AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>